the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, techno smiths discover tough little princesses prefer gunmetal pink. The long shores of night and hunting boars with pikes. Plus, we finish up the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. I want to remind you that we are reissuing these great new editions of Larry Correa's Monster Hunter series books in leather-bound, or maybe wyvern hide-bound, editions, all personally signed by Larry. Out in December was Book 1, Monster Hunter International, and now out of booksellers is Book 2 in the series, Monster Hunter Vendetta. So to commemorate these spiffy new editions and to reflect on the series, which will have Book 6, Monster Hunter Siege, out in August. This time we have part two of a two-part interview with Larry Correa. Larry talks about Monster Hunter Vendetta, and we also have an interesting discussion of the Monster Hunter universe beginnings. There are a few mild spoilers in the interview, since we are talking about a commemorative leather-bound edition of the Monster Hunter Vendetta book, and it seems like a reader who's interested in that just might have already read the book in paperback. And this time we have the final installment with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Now here's the news. Ahoy! The May contest begins next Tuesday, and we thought we'd give you a heads up if you wanted to start prepping for that. Sarah A. Hoyt's latest novel in the Darkship series, Darkship Revenge, features one tough mother who must risk all to save her child and humanity. And of course, May 14th will be Mother's Day here in the U.S. Don't forget to call your mama if you can. This confluence of events made us wonder, who is your favorite mother from science fiction and fantasy? So tell us about that in a short paragraph, 100 words or fewer, for a chance to win a signed copy of Dark Ship Revenge. You can send your entry to contest at Bain.com no later than May 20th. And you put May Contest in the subject field. And remember, you need to include your name. One entry per person, please. Just like you only have one mother. Or do you? This is part two of a two-part interview with Larry Correa discussing the Monster Hunter series. Part one is available on last week's podcast. I want to welcome Larry Correa to the podcast. Hey, Larry. Hey, Tony. Larry Correa is the creator of the New York Times best-selling Monster Hunter series. He's also directly responsible for Magic Noir-themed Grimnor Chronicles, uh, one of my favorite series, and the epic fantasy novel The Son of the Black Sword, book one in the Forgotten Warrior Saga, so that means there'll be more of those. Larry is the co-author with Mike Coopery of The Dead Six books and uh, with John Ringo he's the co-author of the Monster Hunter memoir series um, including memoirs sinners which is uh, is out and I think uh, there'll be another one out this year 
And there's a collection that I know is going to be out this year, a story set in the Monster Hunter universe coming out in autumn written by a host of authors. And that is extremely cool, and we're really happy to, to have that. Um, Larry has been an accountant, part owner of a good gun store, a shooting instructor, a competitive shooter himself. He grew up in the California Outback and now lives in Utah. And now at booksellers, or at least on order, um, because uh, Amazon has not started shipping these yet, as I understand it, is the second of a planned issue, uh, reissue of the Monster Hunter series books in these beautiful signed leather-bound editions, or maybe it's basilisk-bound or dragon skin, or we're not sure. The Monster Hunter main series books are the Monster Hunter International, which came out in December in this uh, leather-bound edition, and Monster Hunter Vendetta, uh, Monster Hunter Alpha, Monster Hunter Nemesis, Monster Hunter Legion, and, and hey, Larry turned in Siege, which we are very happy to be um, bringing out this summer. And right now, uh, Bain has reissued Monster Hunter uh, Vendetta, No, no. So, so my first, my first contract was just international, and since it had already self-published, I, I don't, I don't think she thought it was going to sell super good. You know, because you know, usually when you, when somebody self-publishes, they kind of tap out the market they can hit on their own. And so, I think she just did like a normal size little print run for a new guy. And uh, I didn't have a second contract for a sequel yet, but that first print run for Monster Hunter just like boom, insta sold out. Uh, and so they hurried and did another print run, and it, it sold out, too, just like boom, boom, like super fast. And the buzz was really good. And then it was right in that period that Tony's like, okay, let's talk about sequels. <laughs> she came back, and uh, but I was confident. I had already, I'd already started writing it. I was uh, So by the time I got a sequel, or by the time I got a contract for Vendetta, I had already done uh, most of the work on it. And um, so that was, that was the easy one. And then... Uh, and then, actually, before we did Alpha, is when I uh, sold her the idea for Hard Magic, which uh, was the beginning of the Grim Noir Chronicles, because I wanted to do something different. I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Monster Hunter, but I didn't want to be just the Monster Hunter guy. You know what I mean? I, mm -hmm. I, I, I wanted people to, I wanted to be able to tell different kinds of stories. I didn't want to get pigeonholed. But so, thankfully, Tony loved that, and she bought that from me too, which was really nice of her. And uh, then, then. Uh, it was either between Alpha and Legion, and I and because uh, Alpha veers off the regular series and it's about a different character, about Earl Harbinger. So on that one, I owe that to Tony because I I she said, well, what do you do next? So I said, this is the next regular you know Monster Hunter book, and I described the plot of Monster Hunter Legion. I said, or he's really popular character. What if I branch the series out and do an Earl book? <laughs> and Tony was so awesome. She's like Earl, 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 <laughs> and. Uh, so I uh, sold her the uh, Monster Hunter Alpha, and uh, which was genius because that enabled us to, you know, expand the series and do all sorts of different stuff. So Tony was really, really, really smart on that when she made the right call there. Um, yeah, and so, gosh, I, I have so many books under contract with you guys and so many books I've written now, it's like, I can't even keep up. <laughs> There's a lot. I've written a lot of books in nine years. Yeah. Um, when did you um, when did you transition over and become full time writer? Oh, that was see that was the hard thing. There was I loved my job, so um, I I worked for five years for this defense contractor. When I was I was the head finance guy, and so I was the I was the head number cruncher for this company, and I just loved it. I worked for great people. We did fun things. 
We work with cool stuff, work with cool people. We were supporting we were supporting the troops. That was our job. I mean, we just did stuff for the military, and I loved it. And so I probably could have quit a few years sooner. I mean, I was making enough money off of writing, and the books were selling well enough, I could have jumped over. But I loved what I did. Um, and so I, I, I just kind of got to the point one day where, I know this is what I always tell writers, is when you decide when to quit your day job, is you got to kind of do a cost-benefit analysis, where... When you are losing money by working at a real job that you could have been writing, it's time to quit. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I still I still stuck around an extra year because what happened was I um, I, uh, I I picked out my replacement and I spent a year training my replacement before I left. That way, you know, I wouldn't leave him high and dry. And the funny thing here is, though, so the guy that replaced me. Um, was another accountant, and I knew the guy, and he was a really good dude. He was also a big reader, ran a book review site. Well, now he's a published author, <laughs> Steve Diamond, yeah. and a band author because he's done some. He's done a bunch of short stories now for uh, for Tony, and uh, some other stuff that I don't think we could talk about yet. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, so my replacement that I, you know, so I, you know, what their accountant became a writer and and, and left them. So you got a replacement accountant who a few years later, it's like the circle of life. Anybody who's the finance manager for this company will become a novelist and leave. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> some people might take accounting courses that want to be writers and just get just to get that job. Well, the sad thing is, is so, now, I'm just, now that I said this on the podcast, some other aspiring writer is going to seek out Steve and see if he needs an assistant. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So basically, um, writing uh, the 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 hard, heavy draw of having to write books drew you away from your real love accounting. That's what you're saying. <laughs> well, I love accounting. It, accounting gets a bad rap because um, really, if well, okay, low level accounting is all the drudgery that people think it is, but higher level accounting is mostly detective work and problem solving. Um, it's like it, it was like it's like putting puzzles together all day. So high level accounting, fun. Low level accounting, all the drudge work, all the stuff that people make fun of. That that's what that is. But like you do the auditing stuff. Accounting is actually a lot of fun. So I guess I'm kind of a left brain and right brain kind of guy. But don't get me wrong, I like writing better. Writing is way cooler. Yeah. You're um. You like the game too. Has your imagination always kind of run in the uh, um, gaming genre, science fiction? Uh, I guess one could say nerd direction. Oh, totally. Yeah i i was uh, I was always the nerdy kid growing up. So I grew up I grew up in an environment. It was all Portuguese. We were all Portuguese kids, and it was a little Portuguese town. But my hometown, you were either Portuguese, Mexican, or Oki. That was like the, I'm from the Grapes of Wrath home area, basically, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. And so it didn't matter for something other than Oki. It didn't matter if you'd ever been to Oklahoma. Oklahoma if you weren't Portuguese or Mexican, we just assumed you were Oki. <laughs> but, so I grew up there, and it was kind of a, it was kind of a tough guy environment. So when you're a little kid, and you are all super into, like, books about elves and spaceships. <laughs> it kind of marks you as an oddity, especially if you're a fat kid with asthma. So, you know, I was that kid amongst all my, you know, all these tough guys I grew up with. Um, 
but yeah, no, I was always super nerdy. And then I, uh, I discovered Dungeons and Dragons when I was, uh, probably right before I was a teenager, you know, uh, you know, I was probably, probably about 12, 11 ish when I discovered that stuff and loved it. Uh, my uncle bought me one of the, uh, the original, like, uh, bought me the red box starter set of D and D that changed my life. Uh, you know, so I was always into gaming stuff. I did that in high school, did it a little bit in college when I could. And then, then I took a, like, once again, took a decade off to go be serious, grown up and workaholic. Uh, I didn't game much at all, but then, uh, several years ago, got back into it because of some other writers invited me to, to come out and play with them. And, I love it. I'm I'm a huge gamer nerd and, and a mini painter. I'm while I'm talking to you, I'm in walking around my office, and I just have shelves and shelves of painted minis in here because I'm a dork. <laughs> painted minis being little miniature uh, fantasy figures, right? Or um, yeah, yeah. So they're military. little, little twenty-eight or thirty-two millimeter. You know, they're about you know an inch tall or less uh, sculptures, and uh, you paint them. So. I needed a hobby that was not on the computer or gun-related, and that's how that came about. Um, so that's why I started painting minis, and I'm fairly addicted to it. In fact, I have, like, certain minis set aside that I can't work on until I finish a project. <laughs> oh, I see. Like, it's my reward. reward. Wow. Oh, it's hardcore. So I'm, 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 doing, I'm doing the edits on the finale right now of, uh, of Saints, the third memoirs novel with John Ringo. Yeah. And I'm doing my final edits, and I've got probably just a few more days of work on it before, I, before I'm done, before I can set it in. And uh, I got this great big awesome dropship model flying <laughs> and waiting to be airbrushed, but I am not allowed to airbrush it until I send this manuscript in. Wow, that must be hard to hold off, especially when you're working right next to it. It is. I, I can look up. I can look up and see it <laughs> at my painting desk, and I'm like, "Oh, like a carrot, a literal carrot." Like, uh, well, you know, you, you a writer, you need your motivation. Yeah. <laughs> whatever, whatever your weird, goofy motivator is that you need to have as a writer to get your job done, you do it. You know. So yeah. that's mine. Now I just saw a, a, a big article about um, the. Uh, I mean, this thing has got to have gone in directions you never would have suspected uh, about the the gun that, uh, that it's been created, right? The um, Owen Owen's firepower, his gun. Well, I, I've got to be one of the only writers that has his own line of custom rifles. <laughs> so, well, it was in the AR-15. Here. Yeah, if, if you go to JP Enterprises, uh, it's uh, JP Enterprises. Uh, they're out of Minnesota. They they do a lineup. They do high end, really nice uh, rifles. Is what they're best known for. And, and they own competition rifles. They they're one of the top 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 tier manufacturers. And I was on book tour a couple years ago, and I was going through Minnesota doing a signing up there at that same original bookstore that introduced me to Tony. And uh, they uh, they contacted me. He's like, Hey, Larry, we're all huge fans. You heard you're going to be in town doing a book signing. Why don't you come out and check out our factory? I was like, oh, yeah, anytime, anytime a gun company invites you to the factory, you go. That's just awesome because you know you're going to get to shoot cool stuff. So went out to the factory, uh, shot a bunch of stuff, met these guys. And, and some of them are, you understand, for me as a gun nut, it's like meeting some celebrities. You know, they got the guy that runs this company is one of the best rifle shooters in the world ever. So, you know, getting to hang out with these guys. And they're like, hey, yeah, we want to make a, 
we were going to make a custom gun uh, based on the Monster Hunter series. Well, see, in the next Monster Hunter novel, Owen was specifically using a rifle because he needed a longer-range gun. So basically, the gun that I designed, so in their factory, I designed a gun that was Owen's gun for the next book. So <laughs> they, they built this super nice custom gun. It's like 4000 bucks. It's like a $4,000 rifle. So I took this thing home, <laughs> and I've been shooting it so that I could write his action scenes with his book, with his gun for the next book. Um, so yeah, I'm probably one of the only writers that has something like that, but yeah, you can buy one of these. It's called the Cazador. Um, or you can also get the monster hunter or the monster control bureau. If you're pro government, <laughs> you can get those logos, uh, engraved on your gun there. So, or, or you can order lower receivers with the, with my logo on it. It's, it's kind of awesome. So yeah, that's it. I mean, that takes costuming to a new level as well. Yeah, it's 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 not even costly. It's like a, this is a legit oh. badass precision rifle. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean you could. <laughs> it's kind of cool. Just in case this all turns out to be that Larry's not been making this up, you'll have the means to <laughs> to take care of things. So. Some other point in time. It's weird. Okay, the the bigger your series gets, the the, the more fans you get, the more stuff like that happens. So I have I've had a, a SCI built me a custom Monster Hunter pistol. And it's, it is Owen's gun from the first book. And the serial number on the pistol is the page number in Monster Hunter that the pistol appeared. Uh, but they built that for me. You know, it was so cool that we were at SHOT Show when they unveiled it. Ted Nugent came by and thought it was amazing. <laughs> he was jealous of my gun. You know, and I got these guys. It's weird. I have a giant bronze werewolf in my entryway. Because there's a, there's a sculptor, uh, Devin Doherty, he's this award-winning sculptor, uh, and he was he likes to listen to audiobooks while he sculpts, and so he sculpted Earl Harbinger. He he made an Earl Harbinger sculpture, and uh, <laughs> and so I was like, holy crap! I, I now I have a giant bronze werewolf. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's just, yeah, I mean, is it still um, just like? Uh, pretty amazing when things like this happen. I mean, while you were uh, typing in that concrete uh, block room, did you imagine you were going to have a Cazador sitting in your closet, your gun safe? And no, no, I did not. It's weird though, because like when you're a creative person and you create things, inspire other creative people. They create art based on your art, and. Uh, it's kind of the cool part is when you look back at this, you're like, wow, I inspired these really brilliant people. They did, and they took whatever idea it was that I gave them was the seed for them to go create something amazing. And that's cool. That's neat um, when you're able to get that. So I, I totally geek out whenever. In fact, I just put up a, I put up a link on Facebook today. Uh, this guy, who it's, it's Super Vikes Hobby Blog where he's uh, modifying little miniatures and the little minis I was talking about to make characters from the Monster Hunter universe. <laughs> and they're really cool. And I'm looking at that, I was like, okay, that's neat. That's just neat. Um, you know, when, when people do that kind of stuff. Or it's weird when people start tattooing, tattooing the Monster Hunter logo on their body. Uh-huh. The first time I saw somebody with a monster tattoo, it blew my mind. It still blows my mind every time, but now I've seen like a couple dozen of them. Yeah. 
Uh, and so it's it doesn't it doesn't shock me as much, but still, I'm like, holy crap! You guys really like this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly meant something to. And it's it's a cool logo, also, just to have. That was one thing I had going for me is right out the gate. And the thing is that people asked if I had like a JPEG of the original logo. No, I drew it on a I drew it on a piece of scrap paper and faxed it. Yeah, this is how old this is. Faxed it to our local patch company that made Boy Scout patches, that embroidered patches for the local Boy Scout troops. And they made Monster Hunter patches that I sold with the original self-published Monster Hunter. And uh, that's, where that, that's where that logo comes from, was my poor drawing skills. Wow, that's cool. So you were offering the patch um, to go along with the, the self-published book. Where were you selling them, like at gun shows or uh, anywhere? Uh, gun form. Yeah, the, the firing line and the high road were the two gun forms I sold them off of. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, here's... So you're selling a mail order? What it is, they just yeah. I sold them. This is this is pre ebook revolution. Mm -hmm. So I actually sold them out of my gun store, and I used my gun store's um, shipping and receiving department, which was you know me and another dude, yeah. <laughs> and we uh, we just boxed them up at the gun store, and um, I autographed them. And these were twenty dollar print on demand paperbacks, and uh, we just. Send him out the door. So I was my, my was my original. I was my own first publisher and shipping and receiving department. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've you've come a long way since then, but also it seems like you're still uh, just absolutely adore writing the series. I love it. I truly do. I I just honestly enjoy it. It's it's a blast. It was really good to get back into it and write Siege, uh, which I finished earlier this year. It's just, I love it. Honestly, um, and my favorite thing about it too is I write in so many different universes. I don't get bored with. Like I've seen some writers where you can tell they start phoning in a series, you know, because that's all they write is that one series, and they, you can tell they get bored. And they start turning in novels they're not having a good time with. But for me, I I go and I write a Monster Hunter novel, and then I will go write a different novel or two different novels set in different universes, and then I'll come back and write another Monster Hunter novel. That way, by then, you know, I've, I've got all sorts of new ideas. I'm excited to get back to it. I'm excited to get back with those characters. And uh, oh, one thing I've learned is that if the author is enthusiastic, then, then the fans can tell. They can feel it. If you're having a good time, uh, fans can, can, can tell you're having a good time on the page. And it's contagious. They mm -hmm. have contagious fun. That's honestly, I think, that's what John Ringo does best. When John is, is, like, spun up on something, you can tell he's really having a good time. And so when you read that stuff, you you are having a good time, too. It, it just comes through. It's contagious, you know, because he's so enthusiastic about whatever it is he's talking about. Yeah. I try to do that. Yeah. Kind of my philosophy. It's that voice. Well, uh, the book is Monster Hunter Vendetta, the signed leather-bound edition by Larry Correa. And it's now at booksellers and will be shipping from the online booksellers soon um, everywhere. So, Larry, uh, thanks so much for, for being with us once again. Oh, my pleasure, Tony. Always fun. That was part two of a two-part interview with Larry Correa discussing the Monster Hunter series. 
Part 1 is available on last week's podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Graves and Cleveland didn't understand the background to the discussion, but they understood there was one and that they were listening to experts. Adele would have let the transformationists make their own decision, their own stupid decision. Daniel was treating them as ignorant, not stupid, which was kinder and probably more accurate. Adele smiled faintly. I will never become Daniel, but that doesn't matter so long as I have Daniel around. Cleveland looked at Graves. I'll stay with Rennie for, for a time, he said. You can do a better job of explaining to the community why we think the policy should change. No, the older man said. The rest of the troops from Hablinger will arrive this afternoon on their way back to Pearl Valley. I'll speak with Brother Heimholtz. I think he'll agree to stay with Sister Rennie until they both can be replaced. Graves gave Daniel a sort of smile. I'll borrow your analogy, Captain, he said. Rennie and Heimholtz will understand it even better than I do. Thank you, Daniel, Adele said, using his first name to make clear to the others that she was speaking as a friend rather than as a colleague. The transformationists have dug out the library, the books from the basement of the Gulkander Palace. Not just Rickard and me, Captain, Graves said, smiling again. The first half of our Haplinger contingent arrived yesterday on their way back and I asked them to help excavate as a small return for what you and Lady Mundy have done for us and for the planet. Adele didn't remember having seen the agent smile when the Kaisha had first arrived on Corsera. Time spent in the company of Cleveland had improved his mood even more than she thought at the time she remarked on it. Considering that the palace was hit by a pair of missiles, Adele said. She had been horrified when she first saw the ruins of the building. It's a miracle that the library wasn't crushed by stone blocks. Corey aimed well, the pillars and arches supporting the ground floor had been well constructed, and the collection's librarian had placed the books carefully where they were as protected as they could be under the conditions. Which brings up another matter. She turned to Graves and made a slight bow. To Daniel, she continued. The librarian is a man named Lipschitz. He went to live with a cousin after Colonel Murciello moved into the palace. Brother Graves agreed to allow Master Lipschitz to accompany the books to Pearl Valley, where I think they'll be safer than anywhere else on Corsera until matters stabilize a little more. We have plenty of room in the Kaisha's hold, Daniel said, his tone making the words a question. 
If you'd like to bring them with you, I can have Wochins take a party to wherever you've got them now and pack them aboard safely. It won't take an hour. Adele realized that though the Kaisha's thrusters were cold, her pumps were running. Their vibration made the water around the ship's outriggers and hull tremble into tiny pointed waves. They've waited liftoff for me, Adele realized. She should have sent a message, but she had been so involved with the process of disinterring the books that it hadn't crossed her mind. At the back of her mind, she had assumed that if Daniel needed her, he would call her. Instead, he and the rest of the crew had waited quietly, rather than disturbing whatever she was doing. I've been discourteous, Adele said, without an explicit context. My mother would be upset to learn that. She felt that courtesy was the most basic rule which set human beings above the beasts. I doubt your mother and I would have gotten along well, Daniel said. More to the point, I suspect your mother would have been useless to the RCN, whereas you are valuable beyond anything I could compare you with. Now, shall we bring the library back with us? And Master Lipschitz won't be a problem either, so long as he doesn't expect the Kaisha to have luxurious staterooms. No, said Adele. I think the Galkander Library is part of Coursera's cultural heritage, though it may be some while, generations, centuries even, before the planet understands that. Our friends here, she nodded to the transformationists. They smiled briefly in response. They had remained expressionless while Daniel and Adele discussed the situation. We'll keep the collection together while the process goes on, while Coursera becomes civilized. She decided to smile as though the final comment had been a joke. It wasn't. Master Lipschitz won't leave the books, Cleveland said. He was sneaking into the palace basement at night to make sure that they weren't being injured, even though he knew that if Murciello's thugs caught him, they were likely to shoot him right there. I got talking with him a bit while we were moving rubble. He gestured to the dusty work shirt and coveralls he was wearing. The right side pocket of Graves' similar outfit was ripped half open where something heavy had snagged the fabric and continued on in whatever direction it had been going in the first place. I suggested that we do it by hand, Graves said with a rueful glance down at his own garments. I was afraid that if we used heavy equipment, we might finish with the missiles it started. That was the right decision, but by the time we were done, I was wishing that our other fifty soldiers had come back from Hablinger with a first company. Master Lipschitz is really very welcome, Cleveland said. The community has a number of members who will be as pleased to see the books as you were yourself. He grinned engagingly and added, well, almost as pleased. Daniel shrugged and said, who knows? Perhaps Lipschitz will wind up becoming a transformationist himself. I very much doubt that, Adele said, hoping her voice didn't display the horror that she felt at the suggestion. I believe that Master Lipschitz regards spirituality much the way as I do, as something other people talk about. You might find peace with us yourself, Lady Mundy, Graves said quietly. He smiled, but she could see that the expression was an attempt to lighten the sadness of his tone. No doubt I'll find peace one day, Brother Graves, she said, nodding crisply. Thank you for the offer. I'll find peace, I'm sure from an impeller slug, or perhaps when a missile blasts the ship I'm in to vapor. But Graves meant well. They all meant well. And she kept those thoughts to herself. Well, if you gentlemen are satisfied, Daniel said, nodding to Cleveland and Graves. And you finished your business, Adele. 
I have, Adele said, nodding. Then we'll take our leave, Daniel said, straightening. He offered his hand, first to Graves. I hope things continue to go well for your community. If you happen to be on Cinnabar when I am, I'd be glad to show you Bantry. I find it as peaceful as you say Pearl Valley is. I'm sure I didn't see Pearl Valley under the best circumstances, of course. Adele straightened also. She wasn't precisely looking forward to Cinnabar, but she would be as glad as not to be off Coursera. The only people on the planet who cared about the things that were important to her were some of the transformationists, but she had more in common with farmers and hard rock miners than she did with a band of cultists. Ah, if you please, Captain, Cleveland said, reaching into his right cargo pocket. There's one more thing I'd like you to take care of. He brought out the blue bag and started to open it. Before Cleveland could bring out the huge diamond, Daniel squeezed the mouth of the bag closed. I'll take it on faith that the contents of the bag are what they were when we found it, Daniel said. I'd just as soon not tell everybody on the harbor front what we've got here. Tovera giggled. Hogg grunted and gave his version of the same thought. Let somebody try. I prefer a quiet life, Daniel said, grinning at Cleveland and Graves. I realize that not everyone shares my preferences. With respect, Captain Leary, Graves said. I'd be surprised to learn that you won the Cinnabar Star by living a quiet life. It's the highest decoration that the Navy awards, is it not? It's not nearly as pretty as the sash and medal that make me a companion of Novi Sverdlovsk, though, Daniel said. But if you prefer, let me correct myself by saying that I'm never more content than when I'm standing at the masthead of a ship in the Matrix, except perhaps when I'm fishing on Bantry. Everything Daniel said was the truth, Adele realized, but it was also a way to blur the real truth into the background. Daniel was brave without thinking about it. He was skilled in his profession beyond most other naval officers, and he was a gentleman who would no more brag about such things, or let others brag for him, than he would cheat at cards. You might have gotten along better with my mother than you think, Daniel. Daniel was charming to women, though women had to be younger and prettier and far less intelligent than Evadne Rolf Mundy before the charm would have any practical object. Miranda Dorst was a welcome exception to Daniel's string of stupid bimbos. But then, Miranda was an exceptional person in many respects, which mother was not, unfortunately. Perhaps if she had been, her head and father's might not have decorated Speaker's Rock after Quarter Leary broke their poorly managed conspiracy. I assumed you would dispose of this, Daniel said, hefting the bag in the palm of his left hand. I'd be happy. And I'm sure your mother would be happy, Cleveland, to accept my share of the proceeds after you've arranged for the sale. You're in a better place to deal with an item like this, Captain, Graves said. There are members of the community who have expertise in jewelry, but this is a unique item. While we trust our off-planet agents, it seemed that a principal should oversee the sale, rather than one of us, Cleveland grinned and interjected. Or even two of us. Yes, said Graves, grinning also. Rather than members having to leave the community for the purpose, we thought you could handle the matter and remit our share to a community account on Plaisance or Xenos. You made the discovery and took the risk, after all. Um, said Daniel. I dare say my sister could deal with this. Heaven help anybody who tried to cheat her. 
But if you don't mind, I think I'd rather put the matter in the hands of Mistress Sand. If you have a starship to command, I'm your man. Business, though, I'd rather not be responsible for, even if I have confidence in my agent. Cleveland chuckled. I trust Mother, certainly, he said. His expression became wistful. He added, it would almost be worthwhile going back with you after all. Just to put that, he gestured, in Mother's hand and watch her face as she opened it. I've disappointed her many times, but she never gave up on me. Adele was uncomfortable thinking of Mistress Sand as a person, a mother, instead of being the efficient spy master for whom Officer Mundy worked. If I may ask, she said, changing the subject. Her tone had no question in it. Do you still intend to buy arms with the proceeds? Thanks to your initial cargo, said Graves, seeming a little surprised by the question, though he didn't hesitate to answer. We're really quite well armed already. We did consider a battery of anti-ship missiles and perhaps even armored vehicles, though. After clarification by the experts in our community, we decided that all such equipment would do would be to make us targets for any future group which wanted to launch a coup. We have made ourselves worth robbing, Cleveland said. A surprise attack on us would be the first act of the plotters. Daniel was nodding agreement. Adele saw the logic, but it hadn't been intuitively obvious to her. Someone could attack me to get to the pistol I carry, she thought. Then, or to get my belt purse, or my jacket, or my data unit. They're welcome to try. We'll build more dormitories, Graves said. There will be more people arriving on Coursera with the change in circumstances. Most of them will be coming to get rich, he smiled, the way I did, for example. But some will visit Pearl Valley and some of those will stay, as I also did. And the rest of the proceeds can go into the community's bank deposits off-planet, Cleveland said, which could be used to purchase missile batteries if necessary, though of course we hope that will not be the case. Lady Mundy, Graves said, looking at her. If I may ask a question in turn, she nodded. How will you be compensated? You're not a partner in the enterprise, but your personal involvement was crucial at several points over the past months. Daniel looked at her. Adele shook her head minusculely. She didn't need help handling the question. I'm not very interested in money, she said. But in point of fact, I've got quite a lot of it. Probably more in terms of ready cash than my father could have put his hands on at the height of his political power. That was an understatement. Lucius Mundy had mortgaged everything he had or could claim a future interest in. In a manner of speaking, the biggest losers from the collapse of the Three Circles conspiracy were the moneylenders, although relatively few of them had their heads displayed on Speaker's Rock. I'm wealthy, Adele continued, because I have been a warrant officer on RCN ships which won large sums in prize money, and because my shares have been administered with great skill. She coughed. And it's my understanding, she said, that Captain Leary intends to divide his share of the treasure, the jewel, she gestured with her right index finger, among the crews as though it were a prize, a very lucrative prize. Lady Mundy is correct, Daniel said. His voice was mild and cheery, apparently unaffected by what could have been read as Graves' suggestion that he would have cheated his crew. But as she also implied, no one signed aboard the Kaisha because of the money they expected from the voyage. A ship lighted its thrusters two by two near the top, south end of Brotherhood Harbor. 
The noise wasn't too loud to talk over, but it didn't encourage an extension of the present conversation. I might be interested if I were listening to it through a surveillance microphone. Adele smiled at her own thought. One thing before we all go off to our duties, Captain, Graves said. You know that there's a new harbor at Hablinger to replace the previous one. You helped design it, in fact. Given that Hablinger Pool was now 30 feet in the air and baking in the sun, Daniel said, there wasn't much choice about creating a new harbor. And I didn't do much about the design except convince the Independence Council to commit more resources than they might otherwise have done. If Commissioner Arnaud can move his whole force in a single lift, there'll be fewer problems en route and on Pantelleria. He shrugged and turned his hands palms up. It was just common sense that benefited everyone. Indeed, said Graves. His tone was barely neutral, certainly not one of agreement. Be that as it may, they, the council, we, have named the new installation Leary Harbor. Hogg turned his head and spat toward the water. But Gobbett didn't quite clear the edge of the key. Wonderful, he said. Daniel Leary of Bantry is honored for his services to bloody farmers. Actually, I am honored, Daniel said, raising his voice enough to be heard over the thrusters, all six together now. And Hogg, you might recall that many of the Bantry tenants are farmers, you and your ancestors among them. Well, we were bloody bad farmers, Hogg said, which is why we had to get so good at poaching. He grinned broadly. And I guess there's poachers in the Delta here too, he added. So I take back anything I said about Leary Harbor. Daniel waved to the transformationists, rather than shaking hands again, then turned on his heel and started down the walkway. Wochins and a team waited to roll it up as soon as Hogg and Tovera were clear. Daniel stretched as he and Adele walked up the ramp together. I'm looking forward to some real fishing, he said. Instead of groping about in a waste pond, however pretty the toy that I found there. I've never understood the attraction of fishing, Adele said. I'm glad that you do, though. It seems to relax you. They stepped over the combing and into the main hold. Daniel looked at Adele and said, I hope your other employer will be pleased with the way things worked out here. Adele stopped and looked at him. There were several spacers close by, but that didn't matter. He thinks my other employer is Mistress Sand, rather than Quarter Leary. She will be very pleased, Adele said. The outcome which you engineered, a neutral government on Pantelleria, improves relations between the Republic and the Alliance instead of sparking a full-scale war between us. That was almost a lie, but it wasn't a lie, and it will make my friend happier than he would be if I explained the whole truth. As she resumed walking, she thought, even my mother would approve. Corey started the hatch rising as Wochins trotted up it behind the riggers who carried the walkway. The thrusters remained cold. Pasternak was waiting for everyone to board. Daniel ducked under the bridge hatch, a reflex action from naval vessels whose internal piercings were tighter than those of civilian vessels, where hull strength wasn't as much of a requirement. He would take a jump seat, allowing Corey to lift the Kaisha to orbit from the command console. Adele made her way to the back of the console, left open for her. That was merely a courtesy, since she had no present need of the better display. She appreciated courtesy, here and in all circumstances. She wondered how Deirdre would react when she learned Adele's price for saving the family name. 
transfer of a battery estate to Daniel Leary for his life and the lives of the heirs of his blood. Expensive lawyers had assured Adele that not even Corder Leary could break the estate's entail. But this extended life estate would have the same effect so long as any descendant of Daniel lived. Adele seated herself at the console. Discussions on the command channel were preparing the Kaisha for liftoff. On whim, she brought up an image of Bantry, looking from the seafront toward the hamlet and, to the left, the sprawling manor. Miranda already liked Bantry. It would be a good place for a wedding, and an even better one to raise the sort of children that Squire Daniel Leary would want. Adele was sure that the manor would always have a guest room for Lady Monday if she chose to visit. The Kaisha's thrusters thumped to life, using a two-way link. Daniel wasn't really involved in the ship's business at the moment, after all. Adele said, Daniel, do you think you could teach me to fish? With practice, I might come to appreciate it. This has been an Audible Studios production of The Sea Without a Shore. Written by David Drake. Narrated by Victor Bavine. Producer Mike Charzik. Copyright 2014 by David Drake. Production copyright 2014 by Audible Inc. Audible Studios is the division of Audible Inc. That was the final entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And piles of gummy worms surfacing after a sugar water rain. A bullet with the devil's name on it and the thanks and praise of readers everywhere for Larry Correa, author of Monster Hunter Vendetta and creator of the Monster Hunter series. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 